Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped you're joining us today to have some good friends, Tim Invoking Theism and Kyle Lander from Christian Idealism. And we'll be looking at Ben Watkins' case against God in his debate with Trent Horn at the Capturing Christianity Conference. So guys, what's up? How you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good, man. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Yeah, so we're just going to dive right into it. Um, we'll be looking through like Ben's case against God's existence. Uh, so Tim, Kyle, I don't know who wants to start. Does anyone have like any like preliminary thoughts they want to say before we get right into it? Well, I think the first thing is, um, I guess, shout out to Ben. Um, we actually met him in person. Um, me and Tim here, we hang out with him a lot, even before and after the debate. He's a pretty cool dude. So our criticism of today have mainly only to do with the arguments, had nothing to do with Ben on a personal level he's a pretty cool dude if you get to know him um and so i just want to point that out there like hey we're not attacking ben at all like we we disagree with him philosophically but we appreciate his respectfulness in these debates and he's a really cool dude you know on a personal level um so i just want to you know throw that out there that he's a like if if you were to like actually have a one-to-one -one conversation with him he's a pretty cool dude so so yeah I just want to throw that out. Yeah, I, I echo the same stuff. This is just uh, purely analytical, academic, you know, uh, treatment of what he put forth. It has nothing to do with him um, and stuff. So shout out to you, Ben. We love you, dude. Um, and uh, yeah, man, we, all, we won't try to do too much damage to the arguments. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I think we all agree. Like, we love Ben. Great guy. Um, and we're going to dive right into this if we're ready to go. So we're going to start playing his opening statement, and we'll pause it at points, just kind of giving our thoughts. And yeah, here we go. It's at one and a okay. half speed. I want to so start you know. off tonight by sincerely thanking Cameron Bertuzzi for inviting me to the first Capturing Christianity Conference and Trent Horn for agreeing to have this debate with me on such short notice. I'm looking forward to some exciting and, and engaging exchanges. And with any luck, we might just be able to resolve some dis deep disagreements. The focus of my case will center around the concepts of evidence and probability. I will present at least one argument from experience and two arguments that are a priori against Trent's particular classical theist view. But much of what I say will also apply to theism more broadly. I have a good deal to cover, so let's get started. Before I get to my arguments, though, I need to characterize some concepts. I will be defending naturalism, understood as the hypothesis the universe is self-contained or causally closed, such that there are no supernatural causes. Natural reality exhausts causal reality. This conception entails the universe is indifferent towards the nature and condition of sentient life. What I'll call perfect being theism, or sometimes theism for short, is the view there is a perfect and personal being who is the omnipotent, omniscient, and morally perfect creator of the universe. Trent is also a classical theist, so I will understand classical theism as entailing perfect being theism and making at least four additional distinctive claims about the nature of God. God is simple, immutable, timeless, and impassable. Anything you guys want to say here, like with Ben's like opening like clarifications and kind of getting things set up for his little speech? Um, not too much, although I know Tim at least his definition of naturalism is um, he, he, he borrows that from Paul Draper. And uh, there is, I guess, one little issue with regards to that, which is I think that uh, if you want to talk about naturalism, you're going to have to put it into like two categories. So either you have a sort of priority monism or a priority pluralism. Um, and we'll get more into that with the priors, but that's just the first thing I want to point out that I guess the way that naturalism is defined here is, not really like i don't know it's not metaphysical enough for me <laughs> for me um for me when i think of naturalism i think of either priority monism or a priority pluralist view right um so it has really nothing to do with causal closure it has nothing really to do with you know whether the, i mean i guess indifference would be a part of it definitely I, I, i'll grant that that indifference is a part of naturalism 
but at least you know at least the way initially that he sets it up is uh, i would probably not define naturalism in that sort of way but i mean it is what it is he's, he's barring for paul draper so i don't know tim what what because that that's just my first sort of you know caution there yeah i agree um I don't think it's a specific enough or articulated enough view um, to be able to um, to be assessed in a way that we would want to make our assessments. Um, and of course, that's going to be tailored for the for when we get on in the video to the modesty um, portions of things of that sort. But uh, yeah, if you are bottom line, like naturalism only falls into two camps, um, either or two categories of fundamental or fundamentality, which would be priority monism or priority pluralism. Um, and so either of those views, um, they have their own uh, uh, distinctions that are relevant enough because uh, those relevant distinctions is what allows us to are, um, to assess them as the actual theory. So I would assess pluralism this way, I would assess monism a different way and whatnot. Um, and so there are some distinctions that need to be brought out a, a little bit more for the for there to be a kind of a robust assessment. But I think as Ben kind of goes on and talks, I think that we can kind of at least see what his view is, which which camp it falls into. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with Kyle that I think that um that uh, the clearest way to put it is either monism or pluralism. Yeah, and then I guess the same sort of thing with classical theism. Um, I guess I just clarify that I, I I consider myself classical theist, but I wouldn't hold to Trent's view, right? And this will be more relevant later on, much later in the video where we get into the incoherencies. But like, you know, Trent's Trent uh, Horn's view on classical theism is not like the only view of classical theism. It's one specific version of classical theism that I don't think classical theists really have are required to hold to, right? Um, again, we'll get more to that later, but I just that's another thing I want to point out. That um, at least the the version of theism that Ben is going to go after later in the video um, is not the view that I would hold to. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll grant him at least those points later on. We'll see. But that's another thing, I guess, um, is that classical theism is not just you know Trent Horn's <laughs> view of classical theism. Yeah. So, so yeah. Right. Awesome. I want to now characterize the concept of evidence that will be, the, be crucial to my case. We can understand evidence as an observation that probabilistically favors the truth of some proposition. According to the law of likelihood, some observation is evidence for hypothesis H1 rather than hypothesis H2, if and only if the likelihood of the observation given H1 is greater than the likelihood of the observation given H2. My broad strategy in the philosophy of religion is to let evidential chips fall where they may and then proportion our beliefs to the evidence. What do you guys do? Do you have anything you guys want to say with regards to like Ben and like what he's saying with regards to the nature of evidence? No, no, uh, this is this is standard. Uh, no, yeah, confirmation theory. I'll I'll get more into the specific facts. I, I have some general consider when I get into the problem evil, I'll sort of go over some like methodological stuff on what Ben has to say on this. But overall, I I would, I would agree with him on this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, feel the same way. For my case tonight, I will begin by making an argument from simplicity. I will show naturalism is mo more coherent and modest than theism, and is thus the more simple explanation. Next, I'll defend a cumulative argument from imperfection, where I show particular facts come together to provide decisive evidence for naturalism over theism. Finally, I will be offering what I call the argument from freedom, where I show there is an internal coherence problem within classical theism. 
To help illustrate my arguments, we can borrow from Paul Draper and think of both naturalism and theism as being in a race to the finish line, which represents the best explanation on the total evidence. The argument from Sisyphus simplicity claims naturalism starts out ahead in the race before we even consider the evidence because of theism's lower prior probability. The cumulative argument from imperfection claims naturalism outpaces theism with respect to the total evidence. And finally, the argument from freedom claims there are some internal tensions within classical theism that threaten its coherency and thus has the possibility of pushing it out of the race before it even begins. There is a method in epistemology known as inference to the best explanation. Perhaps an inference, inference to the best explanation is the one that is most probable given some observation. There's also a well-known theorem of probability known as Bayes' theorem that allows us to infer that some set of facts is evidence for a hypothesis on our total evidence rather than another using the ratios of likelihood comparisons known as the Bayes factor and the prior probabilities of the hypotheses. This evidential method is known as Bayesianism. However, it is going to require me to say something about the prior probabilities of naturalism and theism. This brings me to my first argument tonight. Naturalism has a higher prior probability than theism because naturalism is simpler. My premise A claims simpler hypotheses have higher prior probabilities because they have fewer ways of being false. Premise B claims simplicity is determined by modesty and coherence because the less modest a hypothesis is, the more ways it has to be false. Additionally, the less coherent a hypothesis is, the more tensions arise, so it also has more ways to be false. Premise C claims naturalism is more modest than theism because naturalism asserts fewer fundamental features of reality. It might be objected that theism is more modest because it is supremely simple. I explicitly reject this claim because it does not consider my premise D, the coherence of classical theism, which is notorious for having problems of coherency. For example, according to the doctrine of analogy, any claim about God we make in personal terms will always be inadequate, inadequate because God is only analogously personal. These problems of coherency are only made worse when we consider Trent's other theological beliefs cast in personal terms, such as the Trinity being three persons in one or the idea that an eternal God came into time to suffer and die. I don't really know how Trent squares coming into time with timelessness, nor the death and suffering of Jesus with impassibility and immutability. I argue these problems of coherency count against theism's prior probability. It might be objected these issues of coherency can be resolved by making additional claims, but doing so comes at the cost of modesty. The classical theist faces a dilemma. In being modest, the classical theist faces a problem of coherency. In being more, more coherent, the classical theist faces a problem of modesty. Either way, conclusion F follows. Classical theism's prior probability is low. All right. Okay, um, so Ben throws a lot out here, yeah. So yeah, he throws a lot. So <laughs> I'm going to share my screen just so that we can sort of understand his uh, his argument that he's trying to present here. Hold on. Let me see here if I can find it. So luckily, Ben was nice enough to allow us to see the uh, the actual presentation because you don't really see it in the debate itself. But um, hold on. Let me see. Okay, there we go. I think you guys can... Yeah, and Zach, this will be uh, this will be on your uh, like Spotify and stuff like that too, right? What the podcast? Or this? this 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 yeah, whole thing? I'll put it on podcast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for for uh, yeah, Kyle, just make sure to read it out so people that are listening. So okay, so this is the argument, right? So oh wait, okay, so he he presents. I guess just generally speaking, right? He presents. You know, he talks about priors, right? So the priors is like where you start off in the race. So I like that analogy because I think it helps to like. On, like uh, at least on a bare level like understand um how priors work and how posteriors work right um now what's interesting here is the argument itself so the first uh, i guess point in the argument is simple hypotheses have higher prob prior probabilities which okay we can we can grant that point right now it gets a little more interesting with b where the simplicity of a hypothesis is determined by modesty of coherence um now the thing with this is this is going after paul draper and I know, Tim, you have a few things you want to say on that. So if you want to. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, modesty and coherence is 
one, modesty plus coherence equaling simplicity is one way you can do it. Um, it's not the only way uh, uh, at all to, to assess the simplicity of a hypothesis. Um, it, within the philosophy of science literature, there are um, differing accounts and several various accounts of simplicity that are on table um, to be to be used and evaluated. And I think that there was a survey taken, wasn't a survey, but it, there was a paper, I forget what the paper's name is, so sorry about that, but it was a paper where um, a bunch of philosophers of science um, kind of talked about what is the right account of simplicity given what these philosophers of science thought. And they favored an account called a, uh, a, a an account of simplicity called syntactical parsimony. Parsimony is another term for simplicity. Um, and so they favored a more syntactical parsimony account of simplicity. What that means is um, basically it has to do with the information um, within the theoretical content of, uh, of a theory hypothesis, right? So this is the, uh, what uh, the amount of propositions that are needed to uh, articulate the content of the hypothesis. And they say that an information theoretic account of simplicity would be the more accurate version. Um, and so we kind of see that um, uh, very much in science. So if you look at like the standard model of particle physics, right, um, it measures things in terms of fundamentality. Um, so, you know, there are this many fundamental particles um, and uh, this many uh, fundamental matter uh energy relations and things of that sort. And so that's the kind of the way that at least when you look at theories, that theories are assessed in terms of their theoretical content. And I think that's the right way to do it actually. Um, and uh, so if someone wants to um, show that uh, if I'm a theist and I'm using an information theoretic account, they can't really tell me if theism turns out to be simpler on this account, that theism actually isn't simpler. They'd have to go after the account I'm using. So um Ben's account also has some trivialities involved. It can actually be rationally doubted. And uh, Trent Doherty actually has um, some, he actually brings up some issues with it as well. Um, I can't really get into them here, but he he provides some some ways in which the uh, account kind of suffers certain issues in how, especially in how Paul Draper partitions the probability space on supernaturalism and naturalism. But besides, with that aside, um, all I'm saying is that we, there's a different account that can be used. And that account actually turns out, at least in my estimation, to favor theism. Um, and so recall that I'm thinking about these things in terms of fundamentality, right? So like naturalism and theism, these are grand theories of reality. And so these are fundamental explanations, like metaphysically fundamental explanations. And so when we're looking at the simplicity of these hypotheses, we want to look at what are these hypotheses as fundamental explanations actually saying? Like, what are the like? What are we postulating here fundamentally, right? And so, um, Jonathan Schaffer, who um, he's not a theist, uh, but he's a philosopher and in metaphysics, and he's written a lot on on metaphysics and contemporary metaphysics. And he uh, he has a view um, which I think is correct on evaluating um, simplicity. He calls it Occam's laser. So instead of Occam's razor, right, you have Occam's laser. Occam's, li Occam's razor, recall, is the idea that you don't, um, you don't um, posit unnecessary things beyond right. Necessity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, don't explain. Um, it's the very classical like yeah. view, and then you have uh, Occam's razor, or sorry, laser. 
<laughs> which I think that's that's more metaphysical, right? So I think that's more relevant to the naturalism right. and the theism debate than the Occam's razor. Idea. Yeah. So you don't want right. to um, uh, postulate things beyond necessity. That's the razor idea. Laser is you don't want to you don't want to postulate um, you don't want to have fun too many fundamental posits beyond necessity, right? So um, that's the kind of idea. So we're looking, instead of just the posits themselves, we're looking at the fundamental posits. Um, and so don't increase your explanatory assumptions beyond necessity. Well, don't increase your ex uh, fundamental explanatory assumptions beyond necessity. So that's what the laser does. And um, so in that way, then when we look at um, these, these two theories, we can categorically evaluate the theoretical content by looking at it in terms of it qualitatively and quantitatively. And um, uh, contemporarily, Joshua C. Jawadi, theist, he's um, wrote in his paper, Grounding Existence of God. He, uh, he uses Schaffer's approach to simplicity um, to actually uh, show that uh, theism um, would actually be the, the simplest theory on the table, uh, rivaling naturalism. Uh, when you actually situate theism within a trope theoretic account. Um, and so we want a grand theory that explains the data and it has fewest fundamental entities, fewest fundamental kinds it falls into, and fewest fundamental properties held in the least complex way. That's the idea. And of course, we're talking also in terms of metaphysics, metaphysically as well. So we can say that the hypothesis, um, well, anyways, I, want, I want, actually want to couch there. Is there anything else I... Um, I need to say or are um no i think you're good i mean i think the, mm -hmm. the general point is like the way that ben i mean of course ben is borrowing from paul draper here but the way that paul draper does simplicity i don't think is personally i don't think that's correct i think the best way we should do it is look at look at it in a syntactical simplicity way but also apply that to metaphysics which when you go there then you should apply occam's laser and then that gets into the whole you know, what is, what are you positing as fundamental to reality itself, right? Um, because it's not just about, I would say it's not just about the number of claims, because you could have certain claims yeah. that are entailments. Like, for example, the hypothesis of indifference is entailed from naturalism, right? I can grant that. But the problem is that more fundamentally speaking, we're talking metaphysically, naturalism can only fit into two categories, either it's priority monism or priority pluralism. And so because of that, then you have to assess the simplicity of naturalism based on what those two views posit as fundamental, right? Um, right? And I think that Sijawati does a really good job of showing how theism, you know, when you when you compare theism with with naturalism or those two views, right? Um, theism actually has the advantage, either in terms of uh, qualitative or quantitative simplicity, right? And, and I think a good thing so. to point out is that uh, you know this whole this whole notion of fundamentality is is important because. Um, ben brought up like, you know, how does it fit with this whole idea that God enters into time? Uh, how do you get a trinity? All these different things. These aren't needed to explain the data, right? So we look at the data in question that we're trying to explain. We don't need to invoke a trinity. We don't need to invoke how God enters into time in our fundamental explanation. And so we don't actually need those as their own distinct propositions within our theory. Right. So, you know, you have, yeah, God exists. This is what God is. And then, you know, these are all just separate propositions. This is our theoretical content. A lot of these things like Kyle is saying are actually going to be just consequences of a theory. These things that we can kind of epistemically predict once we unpack what it means 
to be this theory, or some of these things are just going to be entailments or near entailments, right? And so uh, you can get a lot of things for free, uh, essentially, um, given um, certain theoretical content. And I think on theism, that's ultimately what happens. Um, so in terms of um, what we think is the correct account of simplicity, the reason why we think it favors theism over naturalism is because um, given pluralism and, and, and given monism, remember that there is this qualitative and quantitative distinction that, that quantitatively it looks at uh, the amount of entities posited and qualitatively it looks at uh, the kinds and the properties of the entity has and falls into, right? And so if you look at like pluralism, pluralism mm -hmm. is just this myriological idea that there are, um, that fundamentally there are these numerous and vast amounts of uh, myriological atoms, you can call them more simples, right? Where the world is built up of these distinct, um, simple entities, these irreducible entities, and they combine in certain ways to make up the world, right? Well, on pluralism, um, quantitatively, it's very complex because fundamentally you have these simples. You have a near infinite amount of simples. I mean, think about the whole entire universe, right? And all the things, all the all the particles that make up the universe, right? These are all built up from these simples. Those are all supposed to be fundamental. Um, so it's very complex. Uh, but qualitatively, um, you can say that a simple falls into one kind, that being a trope. You can, you can actually build substances out of tropes. I'm not going to get into trope theory, but that... Um, Trope theorists would agree with that. Um, and then um, you can say um, that then since tropes don't have properties, then, you know, there's zero properties there. So you have zero properties, one kind trope, but you have an enormous amount of entities fundamentally being positive. On monism, on the other hand, um, you have one fundamental entity, that being the cosmos. Um, and uh, so it's quantitatively simple but it's qualitatively very complex. Why is it qualitatively complex? Well, it's because uh, now you have, look at all the fundamental properties you have to posit, right? All the properties about the field states, about the wave functions, uh, all the parameters and initial conditions, right? That, you, that you know, if you just look up the physics, it's very complex. There's a lot of properties here. Um, and there's a lot of kinds, uh, particles and, spatial temporal regions of space-time they all fall into many different kinds that you can um fit things into um i think i think there's like a thousand eighty different uh, kinds of particles right so um so on that part um you can uh it's going to be uh very qualitatively complex so on pluralism you have it being quantitatively simple oh, sorry qualitatively simple but quantitatively complex on monism, you have it being quantitatively simple, but qualitatively complex. But on theism, situated in a trope theoretic account, right, which is how Kyle and I, we both agree that this is the right way to define what theism is, that there exists a one single metaphysically simple omnipotence trope, that idea. Um, given that idea, what it means to be a metaphysically simple omnipotence trope, what you have is you have one entity, the metaphysically simple omnipotence trope. Um, that falls in the one kind trope, which has zero properties. It has zero properties because tropes aren't properties. They, uh, tropes don't have properties. They are the properties, right? And so, um, then on that view, that's as simple as you can get one entity with zero properties and one kind. That's, um, 
that's actually better than what Swinburne tries to do because Swinburne tries to start off with one property omnipotence and then he tries to through an entailment relation get all the other properties but we don't even have any properties here given that it's a trope um and we don't even need to get them through entailment relations we can get all the other properties omniscience all these different things not as extra claims that ben wants to say but through numerical identity relations um so theism actually is a is the actually simplest theory on the table and the reason why you start to see why um being able to say whether naturalism, your theory of naturalism falls in the pluralism or monism becomes important is because as you saw, with that, um, whatever view you pick, it's gonna change on the qualitative and quantitative uh, evaluations. And so that's why you, we need to be very clear about what theory we're, we're putting forth and articulating because the simplicity assessments are going to change relative to pluralism or monism. So that's just uh, all, all in a big, giant, packaged way to put it. Uh, those would be the more nuanced points, given Ben's uh, argument here. Yeah, that's a lot of great uh, things on simplicity, and I just enjoyed like listening to you talk, and I'm like uh, just chilling. But I think it's helpful because I think sometimes, like in like the this debate, it's very easy to like kind of think, well, here's how we determine simplicity. But I think what you, Tim and Kyle, have done a really good job of is thinking is. Uh, well, there's a lot of different factors we have to think about here when we're thinking about the nature of like simplicity. It's gonna be hard to get it down to just a couple things. Um, so yeah, that's really great. So we'll keep on going then if that's good with you guys. Yeah, I just I think you should be able to just try yeah, there we go. I'll keep up the uh, presentation on my end, but you could switch it over or whatever. Yep, all good. Just let me know when you want to pull up Ben's slides. And thank you so much again, no Ben, for um because you knew this was coming, uh sharing his yeah. slide. Well, one, one last thing logic. one last thing before um, I continue, or before you continue, is that if I were an atheist, these are the sort of arguments that I would be using. So same. So yeah, Ben's arguments are not like they're not Richard Dawkins or you know, they're pretty good arguments. Um so yeah. So yeah. Yeah, Ben, it's great. Moving on now from prior probability, how do the evidential chips from experience fall for theism? That brings me to my next argument and my most important one, the argument from imperfection. The imperfections we observe are evidence against theism because the probability of observing them given perfect being, perfect being theism is zero. We can only confer this probability on this observation if we make assumptions about perfect being theism and perfection more broadly. Those assumptions are given by my premise G. A perfect creator could not create anything less than a perfect universe. If it's conceded that H, the universe, contains imperfection, then conclusion I follows. There is no perfect creator of the universe. We might be tempted to deny G, but that premise is entailed by God's omnipotence and moral perfection. The actions of a perfect being cannot decrease the degree of perfection of the universe as a whole in any possible world. And that okay. claim entails premise G. Premise okay, G, yeah. then, is necessarily true. Do you think? Oh. Okay. Yeah, maybe how about let's continue until he gets the eye and then we'll stop the because there's a lot we could say on this. Okay. Premise H is the only contingent premise we can deny. Why think the universe contains imperfections such that the universe is worse than it would be? What sort of observation probabilistically counts as evidence against theism? It is to these questions that I now turn. So do you want to say anything before he gets into those okay. specific examples? So Kyle? there, there are. So there's a lot of. I don't want to get too much into details here because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk a lot about the problem of evil when we get to his argument there. But there are some general. I think we lost Kyle for a second. Oh, sure. An argument. <laughs> oh, because. Hey, Kyle. Um, can you um? Can you, sorry, we we lost you for like five seconds oh hello mm -hmm. just just restart yeah you're good. yeah you're good okay so what i was what i was gonna say is that there are some um i guess general considerations we want to 
take into account when, when it comes to this argument, right? So the way that Ben is proceeding, right, is he's taking the theoretical concept of theism, which is that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, right? Or maybe in this case, he's saying that God is perfect, right? And so then, therefore, given that content, we say, okay, God can only create a perfect universe, right? But the problem, at least the, the first initial worry I have there, um, and this will become relevant more in the problem of evil, but is that Ben is using a, an axiology that um, is controversial, I, I would I would say, right? Um, so basically what, what he's doing here is he's, he's using a certain axiology um, in order to say, well, given this axiology and given theism, then we would expect a perfect universe. But since we don't see that, then, you know, that would be disconfirmation, right? Um, Can I just say something real quick? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So what, if you notice what Ben is saying, I'll say this real quick and I'll hand it just back yeah, yeah. to you, Ben. Uh, what you notice what Ben is saying is he said, um, and the imperfections of the universe are evidence against perfect being theism. And then he gives this logical argument. Uh, perfect creator would not create anything less than the perfect universe. The universe is imperfect. Therefore, there is no perfect creator of the universe. If you notice what he said before he presented this argument, he said that that G is an assumption. Um, so to, to, to make this argument work, he's proceeding with this assumption. The assumption is that a perfect creator would not create anything less than a perfect universe. And that assumption is fundamental and is indispensable for him to make his argument. He needs that assumption to make the argument. So what I'm trying to say is, well, it's an assumption. It can be questioned. It can be doubted. Um, and um, now he goes to defend the assumption um, but it's an assumption that just isn't uh, just isn't taken for granted. It's not a given, like how I was saying. This is a controversial premise. Um, and so if you don't, if you have different assumptions, if the interlocutor has a different assumption, then this is going to be very problematic for the argument logically here. Uh, so I just want to say that Ben fully uh, explicitly states that G is the assumption that he has to use, the starting assumption he has to use to make the argument. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Um, I would just say it's tricky to make like deductive arguments in general because um, it's just always going to be a way for like a premise that someone can deny. And it's something I talked about with like Jonah when we had our conversation on the problem of evil recently. Um, so that's one of the things like I think you guys hinted at a little bit that's really important to remember is like when you're making like these kind of deductive arguments, it's really relying on Ben's intuitions and can he defend them? Um, and these kind of arguments can be very tricky to defend. So, yeah. And, and, and what's interesting, and Marilyn Adams points this out. I mean, we could say that this argument from imperfection is an argument, for, is a logical argument from evil, given that um, that it relies on evils uh, to be to be supported. Um, but um, that there, when you're making these arguments, there really isn't any religion neutral um, starting point to make with these. Like like you like Kyle was saying, like it's it's like there is. Um, axiology being involved here um being uh, and not being shared between the two parties that are making that are arguing about this particular premise here um and everything so he he thinks that well it seems like a lot of the times we we feel as though or at least naturalists kind of think, think that they can start with these religion neutral assumptions about axiology but there actually aren't any. You, you actually can't do that to make this mm -hmm. argument so anyways kyle go ahead no yeah and um I mean, I know Tim, you had a lot. To, you had, I know there's a paper about um, 
Satan's apple you wanted to discuss. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about the axiology when I go with the problem a little bit. Um, but that's the first thing I want to point out is that in order for Ben to use this argument, there's going to have to be, he has to use the content of theism to do that, but then he also has to use his axiology, which will be controversial, right? Um, so that's the only, that's the, just the main thing I want to point out. And then I know Tim, you had a lot to say on the uh, imperfection part specifically. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to point out just uh, just points, um, um, but just kind of some some defeaters that someone can present um, to this kind of argument. Um, and um, none of these points are, I'm going to say are should be rationally compelling. Um, but they can be presented as, uh, as, uh, taking the scene as defeaters. So, um, the idea here is, uh, yeah. So in that paper, um, I forget the, uh, the, the, the when God name. meets Adam's apple, <laughs> I think uh, that's it what it was called. I forgot. I think it was Rubio or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but basically it's a paper about, um, worlds and, um, and it's called the paradox of creation. Um, and basically the idea is uh that the uh, author points out is that um if we have this idea that god can um should create god god since he's a perfect creator he has this obligation to create a perfect world or a best possible world or the best possible world i know there's a different ben, ben brings up there's a different a best and the best right but either way um you're going to run into a paradox that God can't really create any world at all because um, the upper and lower threshold is that um, there is, there's this kind of assumption that God will make no inferior choice that if you have a choice between a and B and a is inferior to B, then if these are worlds then God's going to create world B, but then there's going to be a world that B is inferior to, and there's going to be a world that C is inferior to and the D is inferior to. And um, ad infinitum, you can never stop going down that series. Um, and then it turns out that God actually can't create anything at all because every choice will be inferior because you can always do something better. There can always be added more value. There can be less defects, you know, um, in, in that world. Right. So it's called the paradox creation. Right. And so he, it's a very complex and sophisticated paper. Just, I'll just let you guys know it's very technical. Um, but basically the, um, the author, uh, and I sent this. I sent this paper to Ben too. So maybe he's read it and stuff. If he sees this, then he'll he'll know about it. But I think he'll agree with me that it was quite technical. Um, but basically, the 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 philosopher basically argues that um, there's really only two ways that you can really um, uh, escape this problem. Either you can go a Swinburnian route, but of course the classical theist isn't going to go the Swinburnian route. Um, so he says if you're a classical theist, then you should go Marilyn Adams route which is that um, we can't apply any obligations to gods, basically, is the idea. That uh, God actually, um, the way out is that God actually doesn't have any obligation to create a best or the best or perfect world, right? Um, and then um, Rob Coons has a paper on called um, what, is, uh, what Does God Aim at Maximizing? And it's a paper about world creation as well. And basically, Coons brings up this... Um, problem that's notable in the literature called the uh it's a it's notion of incommensurability when something's incommensurate uh it's something that um you it's something that cannot be measured against something else it's disproportionate to something else right um so uh 
you know, you could take two shapes uh, of different uh, of unequal uh, uh, of unequal lengths, and they're incommensurate to one another. That kind of idea. It's kind of a mathematical idea. And um, the idea here is that you will run into this issue of incommensurability, right? Um, when you're creating worlds, right? So if you want to say that there is a best or the best or a perfect world, um, then you're going to run into this issue of commensurability because uh, incommensurability because these worlds will end up being incommensurate to one another, right? I mean, best in relation to, well, Ben wants to say it's in relation, it's relative to a perfect world, which would be some kind of idealized instance of a world, right? But that's, I mean, I mean, that's very hard to, to figure out because um, there are, and he's aware of this whole idea in philosophy called the repugnant, uh, the uh, repugnant conclusion, I think. Um, but there's this idea that, you know, there could be certain worlds that have values that certain other worlds don't. But these, but this world over here is valuable in its own way, incommensurate to this other world over here, right? So for example, um, you know, Helen Keller um, is, no one would deny that who she is and what she was able to do um, wasn't valuable. It was amazingly valuable, right? Her disabilities contributed to who she was as a person, her identity, and what she was able to do, um, and the valuable things. But that doesn't say that disability is more valuable than being able, right? Um, they're incommensurate with one another. Uh, just like someone who um, who uh, uh, was able to make it to the Olympics, um, uh, or someone who was able to make it to uh, world-class uh, swimming championships, right? A swimmer but they had the natural disposition to do it. They were naturally good at it is any better than someone who worked really hard for it. They're valuable in their own way. They're incommensurate to one another, right? It's the same way with worlds. And so Coons um, concludes that given incommensurability um, and he brings up uh, overlapping um, points in the paper paradox of creation as well, of uh, the no inferior choice principle and all the different things that um, the best thing that we can say is that God, what does God aim at maximizing? Well, God aims at maximizing. He thinks nothing that God is just simply interested in creating good things. He just wants to bring about good things and let good things flourish. Um, and that's all we can really say that God should be able to do. Right? So this whole idea in premise G, a perfect creator would not create anything less than a perfect universe. Um, has some assumptions, axiological assumptions that are not religion neutral um, about what God being perfect is obligated to do. Given Coons and given the, the the writer of the paper Paradox Creation, they would disagree here. And Coons actually brings up, it's interesting, um, this is something Marilyn Adams says too, which is that oftentimes to make these arguments, the, uh, the naturalist actually has to define the theist value theory for them. What that basically means is that to to show that um, um, that this really isn't the kind of world that God would create, they have to define the uh, the value theory that the theist is using um, um, in terms of their own value theory to make the argument. And so um, Coons points out that you know religious believers, you know, especially in Western monotheism, and especially uh, what is depicted in the scriptures, if you uh, in the uh, in the Bible. Um, is the kind of ethic and the kind of value system that they're operating on is very agent-centered and deontic, 
right? So they would have very much different conclusions about, you know, what God is obligated to do in terms of world creation. Um, so those are my beginning points. But basically, um, 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 in terms of um, what Ben says, actually, he actually says later on, but you don't have to play it now, but he actually says later on in the opening that a world is perfect if its wrong-making properties are sufficiently counterbalanced by its right-making properties, both known and unknown. And then he goes into providing justification for that through evils, right? And I'll let Kyle do the evils part. But basically, there is um, um, there's a there's a kind of issue and a nuance that we need to point out here between balancing off and defeat, right? So Ben views worlds as organic unities. So, and these are and organic unities would be seen in terms of value parts instead of value holes. And Coons, the writer of Paradox of Creation, and Adams both agree, all agree that we shouldn't view worlds when it comes to theism as being um, uh, our organic unities. And so the, ba the the balancing off relation is an is an arithmetical um, an additive. It's that value parts are balanced off within a larger whole to which they bear. And so in these cases, the whole could have a different value from the parts. Um, and so Ben is using um, more of a balancing off relation notion than what Roderick Chisholm has coined in terms of the concept called defeat. Okay. And um, we'll, we'll get to defeat um, and the full and probable stuff. Though. Right, but this, yeah. is, this, this is important because Ben uses... Um, the balancing off relation to make his argument that this world is imperfect. Right. Um, and he doesn't use a different notion such as defeat to show that the world um, is actually imperfect or perfect. Right. So yeah. um, if so, the parts were networked to the whole possible world through additive relations, then it would be impossible for a world that contains evil to be considered perfect or a best. But if you switch the if you switch the conditions to defeat, right, then um, the conclusion becomes different. Um, so that's going to put that's going to introduce a lot of doubt into this kind of imperfection argument. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Are we good to go to the next part of this video? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So here we go. He's getting a little bit of divine hiddenness now, talking about like his argument from evil. According to the argument from hiddenness, there is an observation that proves there is no perfect being because we can deduce this conclusion from the observation given by premise K. There are some non-resistant non-theists. These are people like me who no longer believe or maybe never have ever believed there is a perfect being. And this lack of belief is not the result of emotional or behavioral opposition towards God. God's perfect love implies he would always be open to a relationship such that every finite person believes God exists unless they are somehow resisting such a belief because a belief that God exists is a necessary condition for a meaningful relationship. It cannot be the case that we are in a relationship with someone unless we also believe that they exist. Therefore, premise J follows. Perfect being theism implies there are no non-resistant non-theists. Consequently, conclusion L follows. There is no perfect being. Okay. Um, All right. I don't know if yeah. Tim wants to take it. Yeah. So um, there are a few. Well, I was hoping to get to. I have, I have a lot more to say on the problem, but at least with hiddenness, um, there is this sort of hidden assumption about God's nature in general here, right? Um so what does this mean? Well, it means that that humans have to have, like every single human um, has to have this like dogmatic belief 
in God, right? Like he has mm-hmm. to have like this this belief not only that God exists, well, yeah, that God exists and that he has this particular nature, right? But I I, I really doubt this conclusion just because if we think of theism in terms of like God's goodness, right? Then in some sense we could say, again, this is just one response, right? I don't want to like present like the full rebuttal to, you know, our, our full like rebuttal to divine hiddenness because that wouldn't be fair to Ben. But the general point here is that because of God's goodness, then under theism, then then if God is the good, then every state of affairs or every good state of affairs that happens would itself be you know god's presence basically in someone's life even if they don't necessarily like have this dogmatic belief that god exists right um but i think most people even ben would agree that there is at least like i think everybody at least most people i mean i haven't met anyone that hasn't but most people have this dogmatic belief that there's goodness right even if even if goodness is not even if they don't like know the nature of what goodness is they at least have like this dogmatic belief that okay yeah there is some goodness in my life right um and i think this would cuz the thing with the hiddenness argument right he, is that um it sort of assumes that god um like there's this moral obligation for god to or at least it's, it, god is not morally obligated to make his existence not obvious to everybody right um but i i would seriously doubt that conclusion just because of the fact that god i would say that god is only morally obligated to um make his goodness known even if the person doesn't know that it's god that's given them the goodness in his life right um so that's the first sort of response i would give right at least in the because there are two different aspects to the hiddenness argument there's the moral aspect and then there's the epistemic aspect right so at least with the moral aspect um, you know, when it comes to like whether or not God is morally obligated to, you know, or God is morally obligated to like make his existence known to everybody, right? I think that could be doubted just because of the fact that um people can people can have experience of goodness in their life even if they don't necessarily um like have this dogmatic belief about the nature of goodness itself, right? Um and so then, you know, from that point, I mean, logically speaking, everyone already experiences God, right, in some c- capacity, even if they don't, like, have this dogmatic belief that God exists, right? Um, and I guess another point, which I don't want to spoil too much, because I, I, I will say a lot more about this when it comes to evil, but um, there's nothing that really requires God to fully re- reveal himself at this moment in our development, given the defeat condition, which, again, I'll get more than the defeat condition later. But the defeat condition, I think, would also sort of undermine um, at least the moral version of the hiddenness argument. And then as, as far as the epistemic version of the hiddenness argument, right, um, I think that that falls into a lot of problems in regards to, like, subjectivity, right, uh, which means that, you know, if an atheist comes and says, you know, if you present, like, let's say you present a case for God, right, he has to say, like, oh, well, I'm going to... I'm going to give you, you know, a book of Swinburne and you're like, oh, I'm just not convinced. Right. And it's like, well, okay, that that's fine. But that's a completely subjective opinion. That's not an argument against, you know, the cumulative case for, for theism. Right. In that case. Right. And so this, this leads to an interesting conclusion, which is the conclusion I came to in, in regards to hiddenness is that I think that hiddenness is evidence against theism, but it's epiphenomenal, meaning that it doesn't work 
and the overall like status regarding or the epistemic status regarding belief in God. And the reason why is because it's totally subjective, which means it is completely based upon how someone can be convinced or not that God exists, right? And once we get to like whether or not, you know, w- once we get to that point where it's like, oh, well, I'm just not convinced, right? Well, I mean, that's totally subjective. That's epiphenomenal. That doesn't like, that's not evidence <laughs> that God doesn't exist, right? Just because you're not convinced that that God um, exists, um, that that doesn't mean that it actually is evidence that God doesn't exist, right? Um, now, is there any questions in regards to that? Because I know I, I talked a lot about epiphenomenal evidence and epiphenomenal evidence is just basically evidence like let's say like zach um i have i i I have testimony that you exist zach right but Mm. my testimony is not it's not more evidence from your perspective it's not more evidence that you exist it's not gonna like my testimony that you exist is not gonna change the epistemic status or your epistemic status that you exist right Mm. so it's the same sort of thing with hiddenness where it's like if they say, well, I'm just not convinced that God exists, okay, that's fine, but that's not like actual, that's not evidence that God doesn't exist, right? Um, that's mm-hmm. epiphenomenal evidence, or it, it's evidence that doesn't really have any weight, right? Um, so that would be my response, at least to the epistemic part of divine hiddenness, right? Um, and that's yeah. the only thing I, I would overall say in response to this argument. Um, that one, it, it assumes that God that everyone has had like this dogmatic belief that God exists, which the theist doesn't really have to accept. Number two, it ignores the fact that the goodness in people's lives can itself be God's presence in their life, even if they don't like have this exact like dogmatic belief. The third one is the defeat condition, which I'll get more into later, and of course, the final one is the epiphenomenal thing I just mentioned. Um, so those are my four, I guess, general general responses to uh hiddenness i don't know if tim has anything more to say on this i think yeah. uh, i'll at least i'll at least speak in a sec tim but i do think like this is good like we i think yeah. we don't want to go too in depth because like this is only like a 45 second part of ben's opening um and like you can make a three-hour video which is like hey, yeah 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 i'll turn <laughs> to you tim yeah. um yeah i think that um so what's interesting about schellenberg is that he um he actually thinks that um that it is unjustifiable on theism that um that god would remain hidden at any time um um in a person's life so kyle you brought up how well just because it's it's the kind of it's the it's the diachronic problem um that that ted uh poston and doherty bring up trent doherty bring up which is that well he may be he may be hidden at this time t but he's not going to be hidden at this time t over here and schellenberg still thinks it's unjustified he's like no at all times that any person postures themselves to wanting to to have a relationship with God or know that God exists, God should reveal Himself. So Schellenberg actually has hold a very strong view, which is really interesting, and I think that's controversial. I don't think the theist really has to accept that. And then I think that um, on the point where you brought up the doxastic thing, that's the difference between the um, the de re belief and the de dicto belief, um, and that you're saying that you know goodness actually um being aware of goodness is actually in a way a day uh having day ray belief of god's presence right um so that's that's all i wanted to add there yeah that's great tim thanks um we're gonna do this next clip then i think this is a lot more into like the nature of like evil and things that like kyle's been hitting out so here we go 
How might other observations justify the claim the universe contains imperfections that are evidence against theism? According to evidential arguments from evil, there are observations about evil that show theism is false, all things considered. These observations include general facts about the kinds, amounts, and distributions of evils in the world, and particular facts about evil, like children who suffer from cancer, fawns that die in forest fires, and Holocaust victims who suffer horrendously. Premise M claims God's perfection rules out unjustified evils as imperfections. So why believe Premise N that claims there are such imperfections as unjustified evils? I will argue we can justify Premise N using an inductive method and the moral assumption that the world is, on the whole, imperfect unless all its wrong-making properties are sufficiently counterbalanced by right-making properties, both known and unknown. Will let N be God's allowance of any seemingly unjustified evil or imperfection? R, any unknown right-making property, and W, any unknown wrong-making property, such that there are only four possible outcomes for any particular N. In three of these four possibilities, N is an unjustified evil, all things considered, because it has wrong-making characteristics that are not counterbalanced by its right-making characteristics. So it is three times as likely any particular N is an unjustified evil. Supposing there may be some right-making and wrong-making properties unknown to us, the atheist philosopher Michael Tooley shows the probability all these evils are actually morally justified to allow, all things considered, must be less than 1 over N plus 1. Because N is a very large number, the probability it is morally permissible to allow all these evils is extremely small. Thus, we have inductively justified premise in that there are probably some unjustified evils, all things considered. Therefore, my conclusion O follows. Theism is probably false, all things considered. Okay. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll let you talk to I, The only thing I would say, just very briefly, is yeah, it's yeah, really tricky ahead. to count like each instance of like apparent evil. And I think well, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I will get into that. Okay. So, wait, wait hold on. Hold on. I yeah, want to say one ahead. thing. Go ahead. Thule uses a non-standard version of inductive probability to make uh, this argument. This is a Thule-inspired argument, and Callum Miller has shown major problems with using um, that kind to make this argument from evil as well. So if anybody wants to be interested in that, um, that's, that's there. Okay, I'm going to share a different screen this time. Hold on, let me stop sharing real quick. Oh, wait. <laughs> Sorry. I uh, kind of screwed up there. Let's see here. Da, 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 da. All right. Hopefully this still works. Go ahead. Okay. So I don't know if you, you probably won't be able to read this, but so one of the, one of the first things, right, is just general considerations, right? So the way that the probable works is this. You have theoretical concept of theism. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. And because of this, what theism predicts is that God's goodness predicts that God can only do the best kind of action where there is one and no non-best kind of action, right? And so the argument is that there can only be a best state of affairs and a lack of bad or non-best state of affairs. But since we do see a bad state of affairs or a non-best state of affairs, then theism makes a false prediction, right? This is generally how um, the argument from evil is presented. And it with the problem of evil, also, I think it really depends upon the theoretical concept of theism, right? Um, this will be important when we get into axiology. But another general consideration I want to point out is that specific facts are irrelevant. So Ben's actually later on in the in the debate, um, in the few, I think a few sections after this, he sort of goes over like very specific facts about evil, right? And the problem here is that this, I think this is a methodological um error right you know in, in a scientific theory we don't ask like you know why did this apple fall or why do apples fall right but rather why do objects attract attract on mass right so that that's that's the question we need to ask on a scientific basis right and so i think the same sort of thing should apply to evil where it's like when we ask hey well why did why did the fawn burn in the forest why why did this why do children get cancer right those are too specific right 
What we need to be asking instead is why would God allow bad states of affairs to obtain? I think if we can answer that question, right, um, then the problem of evil is not going to really work. And I think if you can answer the, the more general question of why God allows bad states of affairs, then specific facts are not really going to be relevant to that, right? Um, and so another third general consideration I want to point out here is this distinction between evolutionary worlds versus best kind of worlds versus special creation. Now, Ben doesn't specifically talk about um, evolution. I mean, he does talk about evolution later on, which I know, Tim, you could probably see more on that later if you want. But the point is, like, evolution, like, okay, so think of it like this. So what, what Ben's going to want to say is that, well, evolution is evidence for naturalism since on, on theism we can have special creation, right? Where theism makes more likely special creation and not evolutionary creation, right? And whereas on naturalism, you do have evolutionary creation, right? And so then in that case, naturalism or at least evolutionary creation would be evidence for naturalism, right? That's that's the argument, right? But the problem is that it's equally true that theism is only compatible with the best kind of worlds, right? And so on theism, you have it where there can only be best kinds of worlds, right? And no non or not or no non best or no worse worlds, right? But on naturalism, there there also cannot be what's called special creation, right? So I would grant, you know, I, I agree with Ben here that you know if 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 we did live in a specially created world, that would definitely be evidence against naturalism, right? I can grant that. But I also think there's a sort of symmetry there, right? Where it's like, well, okay, if 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 theism can only allow best kinds of worlds, and if naturalism can only allow for evolutionary worlds, then there needs to be more work done, right? There needs to be more work done. Because on naturalism, the thing on naturalism is that naturalism, you're allowed to have non-best kinds of worlds on naturalism, right? You're allowed to have these worlds where every everything's just tragic, right? Where there's there's no range, there's no like fine-tuned range of good and evil states, right? Um and so on naturalism, it's fully compatible with the worst kind of world, right? But on theism, you can't have that, right? So there has to be, my, my point is like, there has to be more work done when it, when it comes to at least that argument, right? This whole idea that, you know, evolution is supposed to support naturalism over theism. I think the problem there is that it's ignoring this symmetry breaker, right? Where there seems to be a symmetry between theism not allowing for worse worlds and naturalism not allowing for special creation, Right. I, I just want to point that out there just as a general consideration for now, because I know Tim wants he, he could say more on evolutionary evils later. Well, I, I just want to ask if yeah. if Zach under, understands yeah. the point you just made. You understand? Yeah, I think I'm gosh, um, there's a there's obviously a lot that is like happening right now. And I think the Google Doc is super help, helpful. Um, the, the point where you, that you've underlined where it says this means there's a symmetry between theism not allowing for the worst worlds and not naturalism not allowing for special creation. Can you just go a little bit more into that? Because I think that's helpful. And then maybe so that would be good for this. The, yeah. the point I'm trying to make here is that while it is true that theism um, cannot allow, or at least theism is compatible with a special creation, right? It's not all clear to me that just because theism allows for that 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 naturalism therefore has the advantage automatically and the reason why is because on naturalism you can have you, you are allowed to have non-best kinds of worlds so you're allowed to have worlds in which only bad things occur right 
And the, the it, whereas on theism you can't have that, right? So on theism that you 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 cannot have a world that is non-best in kind, right? Whereas it's the same thing on naturalism, where on naturalism you can't have a specially created world, but it's the same thing in theism, except in this case, it's not that you can't have special creation, but rather you can't have a non-best kind of world, right? Yeah. And so there's mm -hmm. a symmetry there, right? They're tied, basically, right? And so what the what the naturalist is gonna have to do. They're going to have to argue that special creation somehow is a, is the best kind of world, right? Which I don't think it is for various different reasons. I don't want to get into here. But mm -hmm. my point is, like, there has to be more work done. So you can't just yeah. say, oh, well, evolutionary worlds is automatically evidence for naturalism. I would say, well, no, it's not because you, you haven't done any work in showing why would an evolutionary world be a non-best kind of world, right? Mm -hmm. um, okay, yeah. So that, that, that's just the first general consideration I want to point out there, right? Because I, I hear this yeah. argument a lot, and I think, I don't think it works, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, mm -hmm. So that's just the first thing I want to point out. And and, and then, so this, this brings me into my four, I guess, general problems for any problem evil. Now, the first one me and Tim talked about earlier, right, which was the myth of shared axiology, right? So in order for the problem evil to get off the ground, it must assume an axiology, right? And the thing with axiology is that the axiology is going to determine the data of good and evil or bad states of affairs, right? And so the atheist in this case must assume a value theory. It's going to have to, you know, the atheist is going to have to assume an axiology in order to show how theism generates false predictions, right? Because the, the axiology in theism, right, in order, in order to show why, you know, we live in a non-best kind of world, you're going to have to assume an axiology, take theism and say, okay, well, given, given the axiology, given theism, then theism sort of generates this false prediction, right? But the problem, you know, is that, you know, as, as Tim was hinting at that earlier, um, there is no shared axiology between the theist and the atheist, right? Um, there's a plurality of different, there's a plurality of different axiologies in which um, there's disagreements about what could be bad good or bad states of affairs what could be you know god's goodness what could be evil right given given that and so my main worry i, I get at least given given this problem right given this this uh problem of axiology my worry is that what ben is doing is that he's assuming an axiology and then he's saying well the theist accepts this and because the theist accepts this then theism is false right but it's not all clear to me that that the theist has to accept Ben's axiology, right? Um, and <laughs> the reason why is because the theist is the one that is is presenting the theory, right? The theist is the one that should be presenting the axiology. The atheist should not be doing that, right? It's not Ben's job to tell the theist what to believe about axiology. It should be the theist's job to tell it's you know themselves what they believe about axiology, right? And so this is interesting because when Ben is talking about unjustified evils, that the the reason why there's unjustified evils is because of the value theory. It's because of the axiology that Ben is using. It's not because of the theist axiology, right? So he's not using a theistic axiology to derive an unjustifiable evil, but rather Ben is using his own axiology to do so, right? Um, and so because of that. You're, you're automatically going to run into problems with, with any sort of argument from evil, including Ben's one here, right? Um, and I don't know if Tim wants to add anything there before I go to my next point, but go ahead if you want to add anything. If you don't, then that's fine, but, but yeah. 
You good? Tim? Okay. Yeah, he gave so you my next. Up, so. Okay, cool. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I, I'm, I'm like switching back and forth between the between the dock and the stream yard. Anyways, so the second point is, I think, more problematic for Ben. I'm not. It's not just the shared axiology point, but there's also this consideration about God as a unique moral agent. Now, I just want to be clear here that I'm, I'm not taking Brian Davies' approach. So if Ben is watching this and he thinks I'm going to say that God has no moral obligations, I, I don't go that far. Um, but I would say that God, because God is not a human, right? <laughs> that we could all agree to that. Because God is not a human person, um, then God would be in his sort of like own unique, he would be in a unique moral position, right? And so I would argue, of course, and there's many other theist philosophers like uh, John uh, Snyder, I think that's his name, I can't remember. And then there's also, I know Adams argues this as well. Trent Dowdery argues this point. But that God is, um, instead of God being constrained by purely ethical um, considerations, there's also aesthetic considerations, right? And so because of that, then the two general points is one, that because there is aesthetic values open to God, then there can be a sort of cosmic kenosis narrative, right, which has implications for evolution stuff. But I think more importantly, which is what I hinted at earlier, which was the defeat condition, right? And so on the defeat condition, God is authorized to allow evil as or is authorized to allow evil as long as the evil is defeated within the total existence of whatever evil evil happens to a creature. Right. So I guess. I'll, I'll, OK, now I'll explain what defeat condition is. So an evil is defeated in the context of the condition when it is integrated as a part of a viable possible whole and that the goodness of someone's life not only outweighs the evil, but that the goodness that they attain from the from the defeat of the evil could not be viable without that defeated evil, right? And so with the defeat condition, I think this would undermine any sort of um, argument from evil because as far as I'm aware, pretty much all the arguments from evil, as far as I'm, again, I don't know how much, maybe I'm, maybe there's a few arguments from evil that don't assume this condition. But most arguments, I think all of them pretty much assume the necessity condition, right? Which is where, God is only authorized to allow evils that are necessary to attain a greater good, right? And the problem is that once, if, if a theist rejects that condition and rather holds to a defeat condition, then any argument from inscrutable evils or unnecessary evils don't really work, right? Because God is not going to be constrained by those conditions, right? Um, now, of course, a naturalist, and I think, th I think this is what Ben would do, right? What Ben's going to want to say is that minimizing intense suffering um, and minimizing horrendous evils is intrinsically good. It's intrinsically valuable for God to do so. And so then God sort of has to do it um, by, by the goodness of God, right? But the problem is that this is making a mistake of assuming that God is motivated by meta-ethical values and not meta-normative meta values, right? Um, and so I guess the problem here is that there it's not at all clear to me that the theist should not believe that God would be interested in defeating evils as an overriding motivation for allowing certain evils, right? Um, so if God has some like overriding metanormative motivation to defeat evils rather than necessarily minimize them, then I think on this sort of account, then God would be authorized in justifying, or yeah, God is authorized to allow certain unnecessary evils, right? As long as the evils can be defeated, right? Um, and I think with this condition, I think with the defeat condition, and also with this fact that God can have like overriding meta normative uh, 
you know, motivations to, 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 to follow that defeat condition. Um, I think this seriously undercuts pretty much any argument from evil in the literature, right? Including Ben's argument, right? Um, you know, besides the fact that Ben has already, you know, assumed an axiology, right? He's also going to have to assume this necessity condition, right? Which I, I don't think the theist is, is uh, I don't think the theist has to really accept that condition, right? Um, and again, the reason why is because the theist is the one that's, that is presenting the axiology. So if the axiology tells you that God is constrained by the defeat condition, then it just logically follows that God is authorized and allowing unnecessary evils as long as those, again, as long as those evils can be defeated, then, then uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think Ben's argument really is successful here. Right. Um, so I, ju I just want to point that out. Now, these are just my two, I don't know how much, I have two other main objections. I don't know. Do we have time to get into them? Maybe if you just that... briefly sketch them out, that's okay, fine. Yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. So the other two um, problems I see here would be, number one, the problem of fine-tuned virtues, right? So given, again, this is a summa value theory. So I do admit that, you know, I'm not using Ben's axiology here. I'm using sort of my own or a theistic axiology, right? So if God is authorized or if God is motivated to maximize virtues within the context of defeat, right? then this would sort of create a problem for naturalism, right? Where you have this problem of fine-tuned virtues because in that case, then if God is motivated to maximize virtues, then there has to be a limited range of good and evil states, right? So there's a sort of like a fine-tuned range of good and evil states, right? And so because of this fine-tuned uh, range of good and evil states, then the intensity and frequency of suffering that we see in the world would actually be evidence for theism and the reason why is because on naturalism, you don't really expect this, right? On naturalism, there is no, like, there's no range of good and evil states that could occur, right? And pretty much almost any state of affairs, at least when it, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to uh, good and evil, like, it's pretty much consistent all across the board. Whereas on theism, you're going to have this very limited range of what, what God could allow, right? Of what, what type of evils could exist, right? Um, and so because that, because of these, you know, because these virtues can only exist given, you know, this narrow range of good and evil states, right, then this would, I think, favor theism against naturalism, given that naturalism doesn't really tell you that there is going to be a fine-tuned um, range of good and evil states, right? And then the final point, um, which I think is uh, most important here, is uh, this problem of value mapping in theodicy, right? And so... I guess just a quick summary, which is that for theism, you know, you have God, which is all good. And so because of God's goodness, then you could sort of map that on to the world. And it's okay. God's goodness entails that there's going to be good states of affairs, right? And so then, you know, basically like any good states of affairs would, would be evidence for theism, right? But on, but on naturalism, you don't have this, right? You don't have, because of the hypothesis of indifference, right? You don't have a good to good mapping from the nature, you know, from the theoretical concept and the hypothesis to the good states of affairs, you basically, you don't make any predictions on naturalism in regards to good or bad states of affairs, right? And so this leads, this leads to the problem where in order for naturalism to actually be more probable than theism, given the problem of evil, then naturalism actually relies on theism making false predictions, right? And so this is the basic idea that even if naturalism may not exactly predict 
the data of evil. Theism predicts the opposite, right? And so neutral beats negative, right? And so that's that's typically the way that Paul Draper, that's sort of how he argues, where it's like, okay, well, even if naturalism does not exactly predict that there's going to be, you know, this or, you know, this number of states of, of bad affairs, it's at least, you know, it's at least a more safer option, right? Given that, in this case, Draper or even Ben is going to say, well, theism, you know, just predicts there's only good states of affairs, right? And so if, there, if theism only predicts an only good states of affairs, um, and yet we see bad states of affairs, um, then naturalism would sort of have the advantage there because um, it's sort of, it, because it's neutral in that sort of way, um, then it's automatically going to sort of like have a sort of advantage in terms of theism making false predictions, right? So my point is basically that naturalism relies on theism making, making false predictions, right? But the problem here, the problem with this, of course, with this, with this sort of assumption is that the moment that theism, or at least the moment that a theist presents a theodicy to explain the distribution of good and evil, the naturalism actually is at a disadvantage because it has no value mapping, right? There's no mapping from the, the theoretical content that I, from the, of the hypothesis to a good state of affairs or even a bad state of affairs, right? Um, and so what theism allows you to do is, you know, with, with theism and when it presents a theodicy, it actually allows you to sort of explain, you know, a good to good mapping from theism or from God's goodness to a good state of affairs, right? Um, and, it, and then what a theodicy does, it, it helps to explain the bad states, of, bad states of affairs as well. Whereas on, on naturalism, you don't have that. On naturalism, there cannot be any explanation for why there's a certain distribution of good and evil states, right? And so because of the value of mapping and because of theodicy, then if theism has a theodicy that can actually is, is successful, right, then that's going to be a big problem for naturalism, right? Um so these are my four, I guess, general objections to. I'll, I'll stop sharing, by the way. But um, but those are my four general, uh, I guess, objections to any version of the problem. And this applies to Ben's argument as well, which is that number one, he's using the axiology that a theist doesn't have to accept. Number two, um, he's assuming that God is a human moral agent, which a theist doesn't have to accept, right? Number three is the problem of fine-tuned virtues. And then number four is the value mapping and the odyssey, of course. So those are my four, I guess, objections um, to the argument. I, I, and I don't. that's why I don't think his argument works. I think what Ben is doing is he's using his axiology um, to make this argument, but <laughs> a theist doesn't have to accept that axiology. So, mm. so yeah. Yeah, that's super great. Um, next part we'll get into is on evolutionary evil, if you guys are both good with moving on um okay if you guys have anything else to say um do we want to play the part of modal collapse trying to help with like planning ahead because i don't know if it's uh, we can if we want to i'm just not sure what you guys want to do i'm fine with it i'm fine yeah okay sounds good i will put this next bit on on How else are evils evidence for imperfections? I claimed at the start I'd be defending naturalism, but so far that hypothesis has been relegated to the sidelines. It's time to bring that hypothesis into the game to see what it has to say about observed evils. Recall naturalism entails the universe is indifferent to the nature and conditions of sentient life. Using likelihood comparisons, I argue there are at least three evolutionary observations about evil that are more likely given naturalism than theism. First, according to what I'll call the evolutionary languishing of sentient beings, for hundreds of millions of years, biological organisms have experienced mostly profound languishing, predation, starvation, and disease. 
Secondly, 99% of all species that have ever lived are now extinct, and, and the state of nature is locked in a savage struggle for survival over limited resources. Finally, according to personal tragedy, some lose themselves entirely by coming to believe their lives are, on the whole, no longer worth living. Another interesting point about all these observations is that they are straightforward physical implications of the second law of thermodynamics. According to this law of nature, entropy, or the measure of disorder in the universe, is always increasing because there are more ways for things to be disordered than to be ordered. There are many more ways for animals to suffer than for them to experience pleasure, many ways for life to languish than to flourish, and many more ways for us to experience tragedy than triumph. Naturalism predicts this kind of thermodynamic indifference towards sentient life. However, given Trent's classical theism, these are neither accidental nor unfortunate byproducts of an intentionally designed okay, process, can I stop? or rather the very clockwork of the process. Just very briefly, so he, he mentioned very briefly that, oh, naturalism entails that you're going to have um, this suffering going on. I, I don't know how he got that conclusion. Um, that's another, I didn't mention this earlier. Yeah. I just want to mention there that it's not at all clear to me that naturalism actually predicts that there's going to be a high intensity of suffering, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's that's the... Um... That's the lack of clarity there when it comes to this, because um, indifference, naturalism, naturalism implying indifference, um, doesn't predict substantially that there will be a lot of suffering, that there will be that there will be a profusion of suffering, right? Um, it makes no substantial prediction um, on that. Um, rather, it's just epistemically more natural or friendly uh towards naturalism that there would be uh such states of affairs um you don't even get near entailments or any entailments unless you add more theoretical content into the theory uh that somehow will allow you to make a uh an entailment or a near entailment based on that so yeah it's um it's not at all clear that naturalism makes any substantial prediction that there will be a profusion of suffering process itself this is the divine means by which God intentionally chose to bring about the goal of finite creatures through his creative act. So God actively employed gratuitous pain, languishing, and tragedy in his provincial production of humanity for hundreds of millions of years. This is really surprising. Um, I'm, I'm not yeah, sure what he means. Him on, this is like his bit on evil, evil. So I'll turn to you on what you want to say. Yeah, here. I'm not sure what, he, I mean, I, so I don't, I'm not in, a, in any disagreement on the data um, that, um, that, uh, you know, for a multi-billion year process, there have been um, intense, or there's been a profusion of animal suffering. Um, and, um, but I, I don't really understand what he means when he says that God actively employed. Um, to me, that, uh, if he means that, like, di like, actively, like, directly, like, you know, God directly employed um, predation, um, to be integral to the evolutionary process. Well, I don't think that at all. I don't think that you can really make that conclusion. Um, you know, he's attacking Trent's view, right? But I don't think even really Trent's saying that. Um, rather, is he saying that God um, upheld the process? God authorized the process? Well, yes, God obviously upheld and authorized the process, but that's not directly um, that God is uh, directly involved in uh, gratuitous suffering, um, but rather God uh, directly upholds upholds um, uh, such um, a system that largely plays out on its own and indirectly um, uh, gives forth to to these uh, bad states of affairs. Right, God isn't going to directly cause any of these things or um, 
or anything things of that sort right it's kind of this idea that um that theism would predict that uh that any of these evolutionary like bad states of affairs that would occur they would occur at the cost of um goods to be had right so god's i mean this is what theism this is fundamental to understanding how theism makes predictions right that god pursues goods but he also pursues goods at the cost or the risk of certain bads right and that's kind of what we're seeing here that god pursues the existence of the goods of creatures and and things of that sort and the variety and diversity of creatures right um but he does so um at the cost of of certain suffering right so john schneider kind of gives this idea of of that god wants to pursue a morally lethic and aesthetic goods that um can more or less can really only be um had at the cost of uh of a certain kind of evolutionary kind of suffering scenario that's been laid out here and stuff. But I think my main point of contention there is going to be um, with this idea that God actively employs these processes rather than God authorizes these processes. Yeah, that's super great, Tim. And I would encourage people um, if they want to get more into this to check out Tim and I's, or mostly Tim just talking, kind of like this video, which is Tim and Kyle mostly talking. Um, the response we did to Joe Schmid on the problem of Evo Evils, so we spent like a good like hour, hour 15 um, diving into that. So anything else you want to say on this like capacity before we get into the motor collapse part of the video? Yeah, we'll just briefly go over the motor collapse stuff. Yeah. Okay. Using these likelihood functions to formulate the Bayes factor and using the prior probabilities from my first argument, we can now formulate a Bayesian argument from evil. This argument is going to argue on our total evidence and claim that evolutionary evils and the previous evils that I also mentioned are evidence for naturalism rather than theism, all things considered. In my first argument, I had mentioned classical theism faces problems of coherency, affecting its prior probability. Now I want to look at another a priori argument that further challenges its coherency. According to the argument from freedom, God's immutability is incompatible with perfect freedom. Premise S claims God is immutable or purely actual. And premise T claims whatever is purely actual is devoid of any potentialities. Therefore, conclusion U, God is devoid of any potentialities. It's also true by definition that V, a will devoid of any potentialities is also devoid of any contingencies. Premise W, a will devoid of any contingencies could not have done otherwise. Premise X, a will that could not have done otherwise is not perfect. All right, you can stop it. Let me share my screen again for the present so we can show his presentation because I know he doesn't, they don't really good, do a good job of showing the presentation on the debate. So I have to do, can you see it? There we go. So, okay, so I would actually, I think, one good way to reject w is that that is assuming a um that's going to be assuming a view of free will so there's two different views of free will there's the could have done otherwise view the or the apa the principle of alternative possibilities but then there's also the sourcehood view and so one good way to just reject this argument is to just hold to the sourcehood view to free will um which basically deny W, right? So basically, um, if you deny the principle of return possibilities and rather hold to the source herd view, then that means God would be motivated internally to act upon um, a certain in a certain way, right? And so I'm not even even on even on like a even on Trent's view of classical theism. I'm not really sure how this argument goes through if one rejects the principle of our, of alternative possibilities um so that's the only response that i have at least to this argument again i don't necessarily hold to trent's view on, of classical theism but 
Um, that's just one response that you could give, at least to this argument. Um, I don't know, Tim, if you have anything else to say, then it's fine. But, but yeah. Um, no, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, cool. Let's continue then. God is not perfectly free. However, premise Z claims perfect being theism implies that by definition, God is perfectly free. Therefore, conclusion AA follows. The conjunction of perfect being theism and classical theism is impossible. It's important to notice this entire argument is analytic, meaning that all of its premises are true by definition. These pieces of classical theism do not coherently fit well together. In conclusion, I've made at least three important claims. First, I argue naturalism has a higher prior probability than theism because it's simpler. I argue this is because naturalism is more modest and coherent than theism. Second, I claim the imperfections in the universe are evidence against theism. I cash this evidential claim out in at least four probabilistic ways. Non-resistant non-theists prove theism is false. Particular evil facts about evils are evidence theism is probably false, all things considered. Evolutionary evils are more likely given naturalism than theism. And facts about evolutionary evils are evidence for naturalism over theism, all things considered. My last claim was an a priori argument about the coherency of transclassical theism, where I showed God's immutability is incompatible with his freedom. I think all of these lines of reasoning taken together give us powerful evidential reasons for thinking transclassical theism is false, and something like my naturalism is closer to the truth. Thank you. Okay, right. so there's his whole opening statement. Um, <laughs> I guess anything yeah. else you guys want to cover before we, um, we covered a lot of ground? And Yeah, we, there's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot so more I, that could be covered, for sure. I thought overall... So here... so <laughs> I just want to make it clear, guys, that I did... I, I wasn't persuaded by Trent's presentation... Right, so if, if people think, oh, we're just trying to defend Trent Horn here, like, no, I, I'm, I wasn't persuaded by the arguments that he presented either. I, I think I agree. Joe Smith actually presented his own rebuttal to his opening statement. So, um, if if you want to, Zach, you can link that video to the description mm, so that you can yeah. hear another. You know, it's not like we're we're not trying to defend <laughs> Trent Horn here, right? Um, you know, we're just trying to present a sort of. A, a good response to Ben's opening statement, right? Um, so yeah, I think th the first thing is the priors, right? I think uh, Tim did a good job on that, and then yeah, I think I think the last the last argument about modal collapse, I'm just I don't know, I'm not convinced of that, just because all you have to really do is just reject the the PA or the PAP, yeah. So the principle of alternative possibilities, um, which I was really surprised that that. I don't know if Trent Horn did a good job of responding to that argument. Um, Cause that's what I would have done. If I would have responded to that argument, that's what I would just do. I would just reject the PAP. So, but other than that, I mean, um, but yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say on, on the opening statement. Um, I don't know, Tim, you have any last thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I thought that, you know, Ben brought, um, you know, some high level, a theological arguments to make his uh, overall case and, and things of that sort. I do think that um, that there are some helpful nuances that the theist can bring in, like I did with the uh, with the priors there, and of course with doubting, uh, with actually bringing in some some defeaters um, for his imperfection argument and and things of that sort. Um, and of course um, that's being backed up and supported by hiddenness and there's ever you know evolutionary evils and things of that sort. Um, but yeah, I overall, I mean these things can be rationally um, countered um, and rationally doubted. Um, and uh, I think it's good for people to kind of see the other side of things um, when it comes to that. So, but I had, I had a lot of fun um, re-listening to the debate. Uh, you know, Kyle and I, we were there in person, front row. Um, so uh, it's cool to kind of sit down and actually uh, listen to, re-listen to the debate. We all go over the points, you know, in an actual philosophical academic fashion. So, 
There you have it. And I enjoyed listening to it as well a second time, even though it wasn't there in person. And um, yeah, Ben brings up a lot of great points we're thinking about. And yeah, thank you, Tim and Kyle, for coming on and all the time you guys put together putting this. And sorry if I cut you guys off early because I know there's just so much that can be said here. Um, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for everyone for tuning in. I encourage you to check out um, Tim and Kyle's channels. They're added in this YouTube title, um, Invoking Deism and Christian Idealism. And, yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, and we'll see you next time. So have a good one, everyone, and God bless. Thanks, Tim and Kyle, again for coming on.